Father, we thank you so much for this gathering here today. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have of gathering in the name of Jesus and knowing that you are here with us. Lord, uh, we just thank you most of all for what this week represents for us, for the redemption that we have in him, for the fact that we now stand righteous, us sinners. Thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for the, for the gift of Tom Lauder and just the, the blessing he has been to so many people's lives and my own, my family's. Lord, uh, I thank you for his faithfulness, for his vision, for the vision that he had for this church, for Lord, for his ear, for your spirit speaking and leading to him and directing him in this way. Lord, it's such a blessing to see the fruit of this ministry today. And Lord, I thank you for the prayers of, of the saints like Rick Lehman, who have through the years watered the seeds of this church. Lord, we just thank you all of the blessings that you've given us through this congregation. And Lord, as we meet today, as we gather today, we pray that you'd put your hand on Tom and speak to us through him. Lord, the verse comes to mind, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, through Tom's message, through your spirit, through our daily walk with you, carry the gospel on in our hearts until we get to see you again face to face. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's uh, absolutely a pleasure to be back, uh, the Capital Community. I was wondering how many old friendly faces I would see, and it's such a pleasure to see that after all these years, there's so many that are still here, and a lot of new faces. Um, I think one of the great strengths of Capital Community Church over many years has been the chemistry of the audience together, the, the kind of warm connection that people experience here. I, I experienced it in Chuck and Elaine Davis's house when I first met them and when this gathering first began. And I sit sat here this morning, so it's genuinely a real pleasure to be back here and be with you. A few weeks ago, I taught at a week-long conference in Florida. Those of us that were teaching at the conference felt uh, quite a bit of pressure because some of the young people that were coming were traveling some far distances and at significant expense to be at this conference. Uh, one, couple, one young couple flew all the way from, to Florida from Tokyo to be at this thing. Another fellow came from Peru. Conference went uh, pretty well. And then the last day, we asked for some very frank written feedback about the conference. We wanted to uh, up our game to improve the conference in whatever ways that we could. And the comments were mostly all very positive, except for one uh, very sharp um, critical review. In fact, there were some fairly sharp uh, and critical uh, comments about my own teaching. Now, I've been teaching for a while. You'd think I'd have just a little bit of confidence in, in what I do, um, but you wouldn't think that one negative review uh, out of these people that came would bother me, but in fact, it bothered me uh, quite a bit. Uh, sec several days, I was kind of second-guessing myself, asking myself, should I have done something a little bit differently or should I have delivered the content a little bit uh, in a different uh, way? Uh, I felt quite a bit of... E e bit of insecurity about it, and in fact, it's still, <laughs> I wish I could say I could shake it off, but it still bothers me a little bit at times. Now, that's a fairly mild example of feeling insecure, 
but I think most of you, uh, if we're honest with each other, we all know that we experience insecurity at times. Uh, Maurice Wagner, a clinical, a Christian clinical psychologist, wrote a great book on security and insecurity a few years ago called The Sensation of Being Somebody. The book argues that our feelings of security are normally based on how we answer three questions. First, how do I look? Secondly, am I accepted by the people that uh, I care about? Uh, am I accepted and loved and respected by the people that matter to me? And third, am I competent in my work? If we grow up with a sense of being loved and accepted and we, we receive generally positive feedback in those areas, we develop a stable self-confidence and, a, and, a, and an ongoing sense of security. And it provides kind of balance as we navigate our way through life. But to the degree that we grow up and we get a lot of negative input in any of those areas, we can experience a painful sense of insecurity that can last uh, throughout much of our life. Well, the fact is, as, as I mentioned, most of us feel on a routine basis feelings of both security uh, and insecurity. At times, it even seems that our circumstances are rigged to make us uh, feel a uh, little insecure, particularly as we age. Well, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that you appear to me to be a real handsome group of people this morning. <laughs> the bad news, it's not always going to be that way. <laughs> Uh, the good news is that you may now have a role, uh, a job, an identity that makes you feel fairly secure. Uh, the bad news is that the kids eventually are going to grow up and leave, and you're going to experience an empty nest if you have children. And even your job is going away. Uh, I was reading a, a book on aging recently and said one of the great struggles of men in retirement is not so much a change in the way they use their schedule, but a sense of who am I, a sense of loss of identity and this insecurity that that produces. And the good news is though you may feel competent, aging is probably going to make you feel less so uh, in the far years to come. Well, the answer, is there an answer for our insecurities? Is there a way to experience a stable sense of inner security despite our inevitable changing appearance and circumstances over time and over the course of our lifespan? And I'd like to focus our attention just for a few minutes on Christianity's primary answer for our insecurities. This morning all the, around the world, millions of Christians are commemorating Palm Sunday uh, the last week of Jesus' life on earth. The last week of Jesus' life on earth and his death is so important to Christian theology that of 89 chapters in the Bible that are devoted to the life and teaching of Jesus, 29 of those chapters, fully one-third, are devoted to the last week of his life and particularly his death. Um, one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith is that Jesus' death, what it represents, what it accomplishes for us, what it can mean to us, is the primary answer for our insecurities. And uh, the Gospel of Matthew begins the account of Jesus' last week 
and the account of his death in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, and we'll pick up the scripture reading there. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. And the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Although we commemorate this event on Palm Sunday, uh, scholars tell us that actually this occurred on a Monday. So we could say it's a Palm Monday, and almost certainly the year was 30 A.D. So the week begins on a Monday. On Tuesday of his last week, Jesus drives out the money changers in the temple, the Gospels tell us, and he teaches a series of parables that provide insight into the age, the current age in which we're living. On Wednesday, he teaches his disciples about the signs of his second coming. On Thursday evening, he celebrates the Jewish Passover ceremony with his disciples, and he initiates the uh, ceremony of communion, suffers in the Garden of Eden, and is tried before the Jewish high council. On Friday, the day in which thousands of Passover lambs are sacrificed, Jesus is crucified in an amazing uh, interconnection of circumstances. God, in his sovereignty, selected Jesus to die on the very day of the Passover ceremony as, as a commemoration of the fact that he was a fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. Now, volumes have been written about the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross, uh, and it's impossible to cover much of that teaching in a short talk, but I just want to focus for uh, uh, some, make some observations on three key questions. What does his death accomplish for you? Second, what does his death prove to you? And third, what can his death mean for you? What does his death accomplish for you? First, once for all time, the Scripture teaches us, Jesus' sacrifice for us removes our sins. Hebrews 9.26 says, Now once for all time, He has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin 
by his own death as a sacrifice. Now, I, I was told that uh, often I use the illustration of God reaching down to us, and I was told that last week there were people making fun of me of probably doing that this week, so I, have, I guess I will fulfill their prophecy <laughs> by doing that. But one of, central, one of the central teachings of our faith is that our sins isolate us from God and from His life-giving presence, but through His death, He removes that barrier. He enables us to be completely forgiven and embraced by God through faith in Christ. And the good news is that as believers in Christ, since your sins have been removed for all time, you don't have to fear that he's going to turn away from you. And all the circumstances and the sufferings and possibly the mistakes and the errors that we make, we don't have to fear because he has removed our sins for all time, we don't have to fear ever that he is ever going to turn away and abandon us. And that's one of the great comforts of the teaching of Scripture. In karmic uh, systems of thought, in Hinduism, for example, uh, your sufferings, if you're suffering right now or you suffer in the future, your sufferings are punishment for your errors in a previous life. And you go through this endless cycle of reincarnation and possibly sufferings for, for, for your mistakes. But the beauty of the Bible's teaching is that Jesus received our punishment on the cross, so we are never punished for our sins. If we make mistakes, if we deliberately disobey after we encounter the light and we grow in our understanding of how to live and how to conform our lives to the teaching of Jesus, then if we, uh, if we mess up, Jesus is, and God is quite capable of disciplining us, but he does so from a father's loving heart. It's never out of a motive to punish because he has removed sin by his own death. Secondly, his death brings us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now, this passage obviously teaches that he desired an eternal relationship with you. If you have understood the identity and the personality and the work of Christ, and you have put your faith and trust, and that is the means by which you can be reconciled to God, um, it reveals that he has desired an eternal relationship uh, with you. And he died to establish that relationship. Now, many times, of course, we don't feel that way. The fact that we have been brought into the presence of God, that we have been inhabited by the Spirit of God, our emotions, our physical health, circumstances, the, the difficulties and the unexpected developments in our life may make that seem the most remote fact in the world. But the, if we believe the Scripture and through faith we trust in the Scripture, we can know that he has brought us into this eternal relationship and that it's very secure. It's eternally secure. And no matter what our feelings tell us, it doesn't change the bedrock fact of that. And then third, his death can and does make us better. Hebrews 10.10 says God's will for us was to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And so through our unity with Christ, 
we inevitably become better people. Uh, the theology of First John, the short letter toward the end of the New Testament, is all about how when we, uh, when we experience the light, when the curtains are pulled back in our own awareness and we discover really who Jesus is and we embrace him as he embraces us, it will inevitably produce change. It's not to say change is not without struggle or difficulty or mistakes or setbacks, but the inevitable fact in the teaching of Scripture is that if we encounter God in a very real and legitimate and genuine and eternal way, it will inevitably produce change. And it will produce a more righteous, higher plane of living than we could ever experience otherwise. I want to, if you observe the Christian community for a pretty good while, uh, probably you have been deeply disappointed, sometimes by your own errors and mistakes and failures, but also by the errors and mistakes and failures of people that you've highly respected, possibly people that have ministered deeply to you and have cared for you and been an example and a model for you. And it can uh, sometimes a temptation uh, in growing older is to become cynical. Say, does this really work? Does the change that take place in the life of a Christian, does it really matter over time? Is it enduring? And if we struggle with that at times, it's, it's noteworthy or it's important to remember that it's not to just focus on our difficulties or our struggles or the struggles of others, but to ask ourselves the question, what would life look like and we had not ever encountered Christ. What would our friends have looked like who maybe have made some grievous error have looked like if they had never encountered Christ? I was having uh, dinner with a friend recently, and uh, she was mentioning that, um, and I say this with, with grief, uh, that in the Chinese community in Beijing, uh, a great number of older women are divorced because their husbands have left them for younger women. And uh, she tries to minister and counsel and support some of those women who've been left by their husbands. So it's a difficult life. So you can, we can see if we open our eyes and look around us, we see the materialism. We see the values that are so unbiblical. We, it's, not, it's not difficult to see what life is like without Christ. But if we are united with him, we will inevitably experience some positive change. Second, and then, and then next, what does his death prove to you? It proves that you are greatly loved. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, particularly verse 8, says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 3.16, says, We know what real love is because Christ gave his life for us. Now, the Bible and Christian theology describes God as an utterly self-sufficient relationship, actually. It's good to note that God is a relationship. The, the classic theological formulation is God is three persons and one essence. And in that eternal relationship within the nature of God, he has no needs. He has no 
needs for anything. He is completely self-sufficient. He has no need of us any more than the sun requires some external source of energy. But the Scripture teaches that within that relationship, there is this eternal and infinite love that once it fixes itself on the object of its attention, aggressively seeks the well-being of its objects. Of its object. It's very resilient. It's not dissuaded by ignorance or foolishness or mistakes. It just goes on, and he goes on seeking our well-being because it emerges from his infinite uh, self-sufficiency and not our particular performance. Then lastly, what can his death mean for you? The foundation of an inner sense of security is a conviction that we are loved and accepted. And so his death means that you and I can experience a stable sense of inner security based on the fact of his unchanging love for you. Jesus' death for you proves that you are eternally loved and accepted. Now, another of the great challenges of embracing this and accepting it is that we all experience suffering. We struggle. Our friends struggle. Our spouse struggles. Our kids will struggle. The people around us will struggle. There is great trouble in the world. Job says man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward from a fire. And so when we are in the pit, when we are confused, when we are struggling, when we are suffering, and those around us may be suffering, uh, it can be sometimes difficult to glimpse, okay, is this really true? Does this really make sense? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we, now we see in a mirror dimly. Now we know only in part. But he says, then we will know fully, just as we have been fully known. So we are inevitably, as believers, going to struggle with this. But if we can go back to the facts, if we can go back in our thinking and our meditations and our reflections and our reading and our devotional, we go back and back and back again to the theology of the cross of Christ, to what he is communicating to me and you through that sacrifice. It can provide a stable sense of inner security regardless of what we look like, regardless of whether we currently feel competent or able, regardless of whether things are going well and, and our family is developing along like we, like we would like. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In closing, three brief comments. Um, how can we progress in this? Well, first, I would say we can pray for a deeper comprehension of it. If we're struggling with insecurity, we can pray that the Spirit of God would would mediate to us an experience of the love of God. Paul prayed, one of the most beautiful prayers in the New Testament is Ephesians chapter 3. 
And he says, he prays for his friends. He says, I pray that you will experience the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So we can pray for that. We can pray for a deeper comprehension of it. And secondly, we can do our best to do nothing that will impede a sense of his love for us. If we, uh, if we deliberately get into and, and consciously step away, if we become disobedient, it will indefinitely impede our experience of the love of Christ for us. His love doesn't change. Our relationship with him doesn't fluctuate on that basis, but our feelings of that, the experience of that can certainly change depending on, on how uh, diligent our efforts are to understand his teaching and conform our, our lives to the teaching of Scripture. And then last, to the best of our ability, get, let's get in relationships that illustrate the love of Christ to each other. And that's one of the, that's one of the, the greatest blessings of Iris in my life was being a part of this community. Uh, there, we, we, we have gone back to Orlando. Um, we moved to, not back to Orlando, but we moved to Orlando uh, five years ago. We now currently work for a mission agency that deploys staff in various places around the world. And we joined a, a, a quite large church in downtown Orlando. And it's a great church. I love the pastor. I've become close personal friends with him. But people from all over this very big city congregate in this um, central downtown location and scatter. Uh, and so it's very difficult to experience uh, stable friendships in a congregation that's very large and multiple services and uh, with people scattering over such a large geographic area. One of the beauties of being in a community, an expat community, even though often we have to say goodbye so very often, is that you're not trying to fit into relationships that have preceded your arrival by 40, 50 years. Everybody needs friendship. Everybody can get connected more quickly. So I urge you, if you're not in relationships, if you're not in a men's group, if you're not in a women's group, find a group that fits you. Find a group of people that are mature and that to, are seeking to display the love of Christ to the people around them. And that can be a profound resource in experiencing the reality of what we're talking about this morning. I would pray that uh, the church and, the, uh, and all of you will grow as I pray for myself and, and my wife, you can pray for us that we will grow in this great teaching of the, the unchanging and eternal love of Christ for us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you um, for... So much that you have given us. Uh, you have reached down to us. You have illumined our thinking. You have uh, forgiven us. You have embraced us eternally. We thank you that your loving kindness and grace toward us doesn't change. That you are bigger and greater uh, than our 
sometimes erratic uh, behavior, our tendency to, to uh, go off the rails, our struggles, that you are, are greater and bigger and finer and that uh, we can trust that despite our struggles or any sufferings that we may encounter, that your cross, that your sacrifice for us is the ultimate demonstration of your loving kindness and of your stable commitment to us eternally. So I pray that that would be a deep reality for us, each of us as individuals. I pray that we could experience it and that it would be uh, life-changing and that through that we can experience a stable sense of inner security, of being loved and accepted regardless of the circumstances and that we encounter in this life. We pray in Christ's name.